Makes a difference when you're connected to the power. There ought to be a sermon in that. Reminds me of my dad. He was one of the leaders in the youth youth tent at Soquel. And uh, HMS Richard Sr. and the Voice of Prophecy Quartet and King's Herald Quartet were supposed to be the feature for an evening meeting and they hadn't even come to the camp meeting yet. And uh, they weren't aware that they were supposed to be. But <clears throat> So Dad was in, in the tent trying to get the you know filibuster, you know, get them singing and every song they could think of. Well, uh, 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 Paul the Boy, I think, was leading the song service, and my dad was sent out to go find the King's Herald and Elder Richards. And he went out looking frantically, high and low, couldn't find them anywhere. And just about the time he was going to give up, they rolled onto the campground in the car. They just arrived after having driven hundreds of miles. And they got out of their car, and um, they looked like they'd driven all day long and <laughs> wrinkled and worn. And Dad, and Dad ran up to Elder Richards. He said, boy, are we glad you're here. And Elder Richards said, we're glad to be here. You know, and Dad said, but we're really glad. You know, you're on. You're scheduled for the evening meeting at youth tent tonight. We've been singing for a half hour waiting for you. He said, really? I didn't know. He said, well, yeah. He said, you are. He said, well, lead the way. He told the King's Heralds, let's go. And so they just walked right from the car and started following Dad. And, and, and as they were walking, he said, <clears throat> he pulled out his Bible. You know, he keeps that little Bible. He used to keep that little Bible in his pocket. He pulled out that Bible and he held it up to his one good eye as they were walking along. And he said to my dad, there ought to be something in here you could preach about. <laughs> Then he said, uh, Dad said that the, it was one of the best sermons he'd ever heard in his life. And um, it, it's, it's a wonderful sermon. And, of course, Dad plagiarized it from him, and, and then I plagiarized it from Dad. And I don't know how many people have plagiarized it, but it's called The Three I Am's of Paul. And I'm not giving it tonight. So <clears throat> I, I should tell you that I've been grateful for the fact that there have been several people who have given me things in the last few hours. Someone gave me a coat to wear, so if you see me freezing, it's not because... I wasn't given a coat because I chose not to wear it tonight. Someone else gave me something to help with the revival, get us on the right track and start us out. It was a whole package of bobby pins. <laughs> so if you want to get involved with the revival, revival, you just see me after and I'll try to make sure you can be one of the 144,000. <laughs> Let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, once again we're looking into Revelation and uh, we can't help but want to remind you that this book is Jesus' own book. He dictated this one. And we would just really like to have heavenly assistance tonight to enable us to see Jesus in his book and in these three angels who we think so highly of. So I pray for the Holy Spirit. I especially ask that the Holy Spirit would crowd out anything and everything in me that would hinder uh, my being a conduit. And I pray that you would uh, pour through me do whatever cutting and pasting you might need to do um, to ensure that the message comes out as you would have it come out. Um, and then I pray for each person here also that the Holy Spirit would anoint ears and eyes, giving all of us spiritual eyesight, understanding, hearts that discern you and that are attracted to you, are warmed by thoughts of you all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, we were looking at the first angel's message. Any idea what we might look at tonight? Man, you guys are sharp. You're not too cold. Second angel tonight. I want to remind you, though, right off the bat, that we said last night there's a common thread in all of these messages. I'm going to put it on the screen. Hopefully it'll work. Yep, good. And this is the common thread 
in these angels and in their messages. It is a warning against self-worship or self-dependence and an invitation to the deeper life of faith instead of works, especially in the time of judgment. That's the thread that goes through all of them. We tried to show that last night in the first one. Now we're going to endeavor to show that again tonight. So we come to Revelation 14.8, and there's going to be a second angel and mystical Babylon. So let's look at it. Remember, we're trying to see Jesus in the three angels. All right, so Revelation 14.8 says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Did you notice how many she caused to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication? All nations. That would have to include non-Christian nations as well, wouldn't it? If it's going to be all nations. That would have to include Muslims and Buddhists, Hindus. It would have to include all nations, right? So, if that's true, then here's our first point. Babylon must have to be something more than a uniquely defined denomination in order to include all nations. What we suggested last night was we needed to look farther than simply attaching some sort of guilt and, you know, fingering some sort of denomination as the big problem. And we needed to do some deeper looking into our own hearts and and into the Word, looking for this relational key that shows us Jesus and our need of Him. So tonight, we want to look at Babylon And right off the bat, we want to point out that if it's all nations that are involved, then Babylon has to be something more than a uniquely defined denomination. Tonight, we're going to discover how easily Babylon and Babylon's problem can be our problem as well. Our problem. Right here. Our problem. Now, let's just do a quick sort of history uh, recap. Babylon's roots go back to Babel, right? All the way back to Babel. You remember, the word Babel is the same word. We we, we get the word Babel from that. And Babel, if we say somebody was babbling... It means that they were speaking gibberish. We couldn't understand it. It was confusing to us. Quit your babbling. Speak clearly. You know, we say that kind of thing. So, babble denotes confusion. And the reason it denotes confusion is because it comes from the Tower of Babel. And you remember what happened at the Tower of Babel. So, Babylon goes all the way back to Babel. In Genesis 10, we are reminded and the beginning of his, that's Nimrod's, kingdom was Babel. You can read about it in Genesis 11. Nimrod was the first king of Babylon. He was the one who built the Tower of Babel. Now, let's refresh ourselves on why the Tower of Babel was built. The people did not trust God. God had said, I give my bow, I set my bow in the cloud as a sign between me and you, but I will never destroy the earth by water again. There will never be another flood. Now, God said that, and he gave them the rainbow as a reminder. 
But Nimrod and his people, his followers, didn't trust God. They thought they needed to help God out. And so in an effort to help God, they built a tower. And what was the purpose of their tower? To save themselves should another flood come. So God wouldn't have to worry. God wouldn't even have an ark. He wouldn't have to have a guy work on an ark for 120 years and all that stuff. And wouldn't have, you know, They'd just take care of it for him. So, right from the beginning, Babylon is a symbol of trying to save yourself. You see that? Self, self-dependence. A few minutes ago, he said the common thread is a call away from self-dependence to a relationship with Christ, especially in the time of judgment. Not by works, but by faith. Now, moving on down, kind of leapfrogging through history, we come down to 606 B.C. Um, By the way, what happened to the Tower of Babylon? It was God, you know, zonk, it went to the ground. It was destroyed. Which shows you how God feels about Man's efforts to save himself, right? Pretty, I'd say that's a pretty strong statement. Confusion and destruction. <clears throat> okay, back to uh, jumping down through to 606. We find Nebuchadnezzar in a city called Babylon, right? Interesting scenario here. God's People are captives to a nation that symbolizes man's effort to save himself. God's people are captive to a nation that symbolizes self-dependence. That's worth thinking about for just a minute. God's people. It's possible to be part of God's people and be captive to Babylon. In fact, the only thing that's necessary in order to be Babylon's captive is to be a slave to the idea that I can save myself. That's all. If I think that somehow I can save myself, I am captive to what Babylon stands for regardless of what day I go to church on. Right? If I think that I can save myself or do it myself in terms of getting to heaven or in terms of living the Christian life. Last night we tried to make a point. Salvation is inclusive of justification and sanctification, and they're both gifts, and they're both by faith. You don't start by faith and finish with works. You don't start by faith and finish with kind of a combination of faith and works. No, it's all faith. So if I think that I can do it myself in terms of getting to heaven or in terms of living the Christian life, then I am a slave to the idea that Babylon represents. Self-dependence. You remember in Desire of Ages it says that nearly every false religion, nearly every false religion is based on the idea that man can save himself. By his own effort. Do I have to belong to a particular church in order to be captive to the idea that I can depend upon my own efforts? No, I don't. And it's possible that we could become so fixated on pinning a church down as Babel and Babylon, pinning a beast 
down. We could become so fixated on pinning the tail on that donkey that we overlook that you don't have to be part of a particular church to be guilty of depending on yourself. Right? You can be a Seventh-day Adventist pastor at Auburn Adventist Academy where I was senior pastor. And you can be in your quiet time with Jesus in the morning reading about our need of being absolutely surrendered to Him. And then you can have this prayer that morning in which you say, Lord Jesus, I would just like a little, a little taste of what surrender really looks like all day long. I, I know I want to, I'd like to be absolutely surrendered to you all the time, but, but just today, would you just give me a little taste? And would you do this for me? Because I seem to be so prone to depending upon myself. Depend on you part of the time, then myself part of the time. I kind of go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So today I said to Lord, any time and every time that, it, that I start drifting into this do-it-myself and stepping out of a surrendered stance and depending upon you. Remember, Jesus says everything that Jesus did, he did to the power of his Father. You know that. He said it himself. He said, the Father, he doeth the works. You know? He, do, he does it all. So I said, Lord, I want to be like that. I'd love to taste that today. So would you, if every time that I start going off onto my own, would you like put a bit in my mouth and pull hard on the bridle or push me to one side or the other that reins so that I, you know, recognize that I'm starting to drift away from depending on you and then I want to be pulled back in. Would you do that for me? That was my prayer. Then I went to work. And when I walked into my office, I routinely had to turn on my computer. So I pushed the power button. The computer came on. Well, I shouldn't say it came on. A blue screen came on and it said, fatal error. (laughs) You know right now that's Microsoft, right? Yeah, you don't get those screens with Apple. But I, of course, though, Apple was what started the sin problem, wasn't it? So my computer screen says, fatal error, and it won't boot up. It won't start. Blue screen's frozen. It's locked. And I thought, oh, man, I don't need this. And just like that, I felt this calm, quiet little impression in my mind. I'm sure it was the Holy Spirit. And it said, okay, you're looking for an opportunity to depend upon the Father instead of yourself. Here's your first chance. Why don't you pray about this? Just right up front. Why don't you just pray about it? And I said, I will. It's a great idea. Thanks for impressing me with it. I will do that right after I try hitting the reset button. <laughs> so I hit the reset button. And it clicked through. Ching, 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 ching. And then came back to this fatal error blue screen. And it really does make a difference to be connected to the power. So the screen came up, fatal error again a second time. But as it was clicking and booting through, I thought, you know, maybe if I hit Control-Alt-Delete or F8 several times while it's coming up, these are little tricks that you learn as you work with Microsoft, maybe I could, you know, find a solution yet. And so I started doing that. Holy Spirit said, I thought you were going to pray. I said, I am, just a minute. I just want to see if the (laughs) Control-Alt-Delete... And uh, to make the long story short, because it was a long story, I tried to find one more way to fix my computer for two and a half hours. All the while that the Holy Spirit is like saying, yo, Lee, hey, you know, what did you pray about this morning? I'm trying to pull the rain. You know, whoa, mule, whoa. Finally, after two and a half hours, I sort of said to the Holy Spirit, you know, I really don't want to pray about this. And I'll tell you why. Because I figure if I pray about it, you guys are going to fix this right now. And I'm going to feel like such a fool for having waited for so long to pray. And it's just going to be, I'm going to be so ashamed. And it's felt like there's just sort of this deep chuckle overhead. It's kind of like, 
yeah, well, so are you going to pray or not? So I decided, okay, I'll pray. And the first thing I said in my prayer was, Lord, I, I don't know. This is just a sickness in me. I, I am so stubbornly independent. I wish I wasn't, I guess, when I prayed it this morning, I just didn't realize how deeply ingrained this sickness is. And I want to apologize. I repent of my independent spirit. And I hesitate to even ask because I feel so ashamed of myself for going two and a half hours while you tried to get me to pray. But here I am, humbly asking for you to repair the computer. Make it work. And I said, Amen, please, Amen. I turned the button, pushed the button, it came on. Went right through, opened up. I got the starting screen, my desktop, everything. It worked great. It worked great for like another week and a half, which is a bigger miracle even that it would work for another week and a half <clears throat> because it was Microsoft. And that's one of the great oxymorons, oxymorons of our time is, is Microsoft works. We did a little bit of chuckling there at the story, but you realize why I gave the story? Do you realize what I was trying to say? I don't have to be a member of some particular church that's fingered or earmarked. We don't have to put the tail on the donkey. I can be just as independent and stubborn and looking to do it myself as anybody else. And if I miss that, then I have missed the symbology. What was the symbolism in there for? It wasn't so I could watch out for that church. It was so that I could be warned against self-dependence myself. You follow? And I can have that problem as a pastor. I do have that problem as a pastor. And I'm seeking daily for the Lord Jesus to cleanse me of that. But he's having a hard time with me because I'm so stubborn. Arthur Spaulding, in his book, Captains of the Hosts, said this, Most professed Christians believe that they must strive to be good and to do good, and that when they have done all that they can, then Christ will come to their aid and help them do the rest. In this confused... By the way, that was the word we used a few minutes ago, right? Confused. In this confused... Oh, sorry. In this confused concept of salvation... Partly by works and partly with auxiliary power, many people trust today. He's talking about Christians. These aren't people who are trying to get saved. These are people who are trying to perfect a Christ-like character. Did you catch that? <clears throat> I remember when I was, uh, many years ago, I was, very, I was much younger. And I was at a high school and we had a week of prayer there. And the week of prayer speaker had a presentation on how to become victorious over bad habits. And um, he had a little question and answer period. And the kids were asking questions. And I'll never forget what he said. He, he went to Blackboard and he drew a little chart. I'm going to try and represent the chart for you right here. Uh, his chart... <clears throat> Down at the bottom it said man's part. Up at the top it said God's part. And he said, every one of us has a certain potential. Our wills, our determination, our grit, our effort. Every one of us has a certain... Some people have more grit and determination than others. Some people maybe have 10% grit. Some people may have 95% grit. But here's the deal, he said. You have to try as hard as you can to get rid of the problem, to overcome it, to be good and to be victorious. And you have to use all of the grit and determination and effort you possess. If it's only 10%, you've got to put your 10% in. If it's 95%, you've got to put your 95% in. The next slide shows you what he said then next. He said, and after you have done your part, God kicks in whatever difference is needed in order to make 100%. So for this guy, God had to kick in 90. For this guy, God only had to kick in 5. He said, one thing's for certain, none of us are ever going to be able to do 100%. None, but nobody will. 
But you got to do your part. You, God helps those who help themselves. You've got to do your part if you expect Him to do His. So you have to try hard to resist the devil and to overcome these inherited and cultivated tendencies to evil. And if you do that, and you give it your honest best, God will kick in and do the rest. Now I want to read you something from Steps to Christ on the tale of that theology. There are those who profess to serve God while they rely upon their own efforts in order to obey His law or to form a right character and secure salvation. Their hearts are not moved by any deep sense of the love of Christ, but they seek to perform the duties of the Christian life as that which God requires of them in order to gain heaven. Such religion is worth nothing. Nothing. Wow, that's a pretty strong statement. It's worth nothing. Something similar, Christ Object Lessons, page 96. Man cannot transform himself by the exercise of his will. He possesses no power by which this change can be wrought. All culture, all education will fail. The change can be made only by the Holy Spirit. It continues. Many try to reform by correcting this or that bad habit. Give it their best shot. Work at it. But they are beginning in the wrong place. No mere external change is sufficient to bring us into harmony with God. The greatest problem in the Christian religion, and it includes our church as well, is this idea that somehow we can save ourselves whether it's to get to heaven or whether it's to perfect a Christ-like character. Do-it-yourself religion is our big problem. Somehow I'm big enough to get myself to heaven or, if I wouldn't believe that, somehow I'm big enough to live a good life, stay out of trouble, try a little harder until I can get this thing habitually overcome. Do-it-yourself religion. The greatest symptom that I'm a victim of do-it-yourself religion is the pitifully small amount of time that most of us have to spend in cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus. Yesterday we talked about it. I don't know if you remember, but I said surveys taken in Adventist churches across North America indicate, these are the people who attend, that the average across North America, how many actually are seeking to have quality time alone with God on a daily basis, one-on-one with Him? How many, how many, do you remember what I said last night? Four out of five said no. So one out of five said yes, right? One-fifth of us, on the average, across the country have no significant devotional life. Without a significant devotional life, meaningful devotional life, you can't have a relationship with Jesus. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, but you hope to get to heaven, then you're hoping to do something independently of Him. You're going to save yourself. You're living life apart from Him. So this is the greatest indicator that we are victims of do-it-yourself religion if we are unable to find time to get to know Christ better day by day. If I don't know what it means to have a meaningful devotional life, if I, if I don't know what it means, if, if for me <clears throat> the gist of my devotional life is someone reads a quick text as I rush through breakfast and head out the door, then I am a victim of the problem of Babylon. I'm depending on myself. I'm living on my own steam and my own strength. I want to remind all of us here tonight that we don't spend quality time alone with God for the purpose of becoming better acquainted with Jesus day by day as an extra or add-on. It's not optional. It's the heart of Christianity. What's the root word of Christ? Of Christianity. (laughs) Christ. (laughs) You would have gotten it anyway. (laughs) 
Can you imagine trying to be a dairy farmer without cows? Or a crop duster without a plane? Or a banker without money? Well, yeah, I can imagine that. (laughs) Here in America. Or a baker without flour? You understand, in each of the little metaphors I just grabbed at, the most important ingredient, you couldn't make it in those vocations without the most important ingredient, right? A firefighter without water couldn't make it. The most important ingredient in the Christian life is daily fellowship and communion with Christ for the purpose of becoming better acquainted with Him through His Word, through prayer, and then sharing it with others. Those are the most, three legs of the stool. Those are the most important elements of the Christian life. And if I'm going to try and be a Christian without those, it's very much like trying to be a dairy farmer without cows. It's the problem of Babylon. I want you to notice something else in the second angel's message. I want you to notice a particular word. I'm going to highlight the word and put it back on the screen. <clears throat> Revelation 14.8 And another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen. Is fallen, that great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. See the highlighted word. Fornication. Fornication. This word fornication in Scripture is used to describe illicit relationships outside of marriage. Right? Fornication, boiled down, would be two parties who are not supposed to merge, merging. Are you with me? Two things that aren't supposed to come together, coming together. Fornication. Let me give you an example. This one's not rated X. Um, I love homemade bread. And uh, it's always a treat when Margie makes it. But I've noticed something with Margie. She'll offer me a piece of homemade bread, and of course, I'm happy to have it. And I always like to put a little bit of butter on it. That was before chip. (laughs) I'm not knocking chip. I I believe in in the chip diet. I think it's a good thing. But anyway, I put some butter on that piece of hot bread, and I know that's also against the rules, too. But I told you I'm growing, so... (laughs) Maybe partly because I eat that kind of food. <laughs> um, I would put a little bread, a little, a little butter on that piece of bread, and I would just savor the flavor. And I'd look over at Margie, and she'd be busy putting peanut butter on her bread, and then a little jam. I heard an amen. Oh, wow. Oh. I'd look over at Margie and say, Margie, how can you do that? That's fornication. (laughs) Those two things aren't meant to go together. Fresh homemade bread and peanut butter. It's like, oh. You know, there's nothing like pure maple syrup. Pure. It's $65 a gallon now. I thought fuel was expensive. Man. And you can't buy it from Iraq, you know? But... When you use pure maple syrup on some pancakes, I'm telling you to put peanut butter or something on that too. Oh, you talk about fornication to the max. (laughs) Fornication. You get the idea? Two things that aren't supposed to mix. Mixing. It's fornication. All right. We're trying to build a little case here. Stay with us. Theologically, there is a form of fornication. Theologians referred to a form of fornication which they call syncretism. Now, that word may not mean anything to you, but I'm going to put up a little definition on the screen for you here. Syncretism is the merging or attempted merging of two antagonistic principles or ideas 
that are not compatible. That's sort of repeating itself twice, because if they're antagonistic, then they're not compatible, right? So the idea is syncretism is the attempted merge of two things that are incompatible. It's theologians call syncretism a form of fornication. And from what I just said about fornication a few moments ago, you understand the effort to try and bring two things together that aren't supposed to come together. Now, theologians use this word, fornication, to describe a strange concoction of salvation which is based partly on works and partly on faith. To try to have salvation that is based partly on works and partly on faith is an effort to try and merge two antagonistic principles. Syncretism. Fornication. To have salvation partly of works and partly of faith is mutually exclusive. Kind of like airline food. You know, they, <laughs> they don't have, you know, that just doesn't work anymore. And soon they're going to make you pay to go to the bathroom on the airplane. The term's mutually exclusive. Notice this little comment from the book Selected Messages. Some think they are committing themselves to God while there is a great deal of self-dependence. They are conscientious souls. These are good people. We're not giving these people bad marks. We're not saying these are bad people. These are good people. These are conscientious people. They mean well. They're trying to do their best. But that's the very problem. I just thought of that. They're trying to do their best. Conscientious souls who trust partly to God and partly to themselves. They do not look to God to be kept by His power. They depend instead upon watchfulness against temptation and the performance of certain duties. There are no victories in this kind of faith. Such persons toil, sorry, such persons toil to no purpose. Their souls are in continual bondage and they find no rest until they lay their burdens at the feet of Jesus. Trusting partly to God and partly to myself would be spiritual fornication. You understand what I'm saying? It would be spiritual fornication. Trusting partly to him and partly to myself. Furthermore, another way of thinking about fornication. Fornication is an attempt to obtain the fruits of a relationship without the relationship. You hear me? That's a brand new thought to me. I was just thinking about that, and I was just like, wow, that's really profound. It really is. It really is. I'll say it again. Fornication is attempting... I wrote it down. Let's see if I can say, it, say it, what I wrote. It's attempting to obtain the fruits of a relationship without the relationship. In order for it to not be fornication and to involve... See, you all know that um, this illicit relationship the Bible is referring to as fornication when it talks about it over and over. It's talking about an illicit sexual relationship. People who are not married being involved sexually with each other. So, they're attempting to obtain fruits of a marriage relationship, something that God intended and reserved intimacy for married couple, they're attempting to have those fruits without the relationship. This becomes very profound when you think about the fruits of the Spirit. Let me remind you, goodness, uh, Galatians, let's put them up. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things sound like a Christ-like character. Yes. Notice they're the fruits of who? The Spirit. They're not the fruits of the person. They're the fruits of the Spirit. So, if I am trying to obtain a Christ-like character, obtain the fruits of the Spirit, and I'm doing it on my own strength, in my own power, trying to somehow produce a good life, be a good person, stay out of trouble, get my act together, have stronger determination, avoid this, get rid of that, become stronger about... Take a cold shower. That's fornication. It's the attempt to obtain the fruits of the Spirit without the relationship. So you see, once again, the second angel's message is all about a call to relationship with God, depending upon Him instead of upon myself. The last line of that second angel's message had to do with the wine of her fornication. The wine of the fornication. The wine of Babylon is trying to obtain the fruit without a relationship. Now, is it possible to be involved with the wine of Babylon? even though I'm not part of a church that's been fingered in prophecy? I could be a member of a church that's figured out who the beast power represents, and I could still be spiritually fornicating. Is it making sense or is it confusing? Well, when you study the subject of Babylon, you can't omit its most famous king, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a giant king of a nation that at that time dominated the entire world. So you have to admit, he's a pretty big player. You know, this guy is the world leader. He's a very accomplished person. Daniel 4, verse 30. King Nebuchadnezzar stood outside on his veranda one, one day and he said these things. He said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? So he said, I did this all by myself. And I get honor for this because I did it. King Nebuchadnezzar was a victim of do-it-yourself life. Most of us transfer into do-it-yourself religion quite easily because we have been victims as we have grown up of do-it-yourself life. We're conditioned to think this way. Part of the sin problem, by default, we are inclined to be independent. By default. That's part of our sin problem. I don't need God. I can do it myself. Here, let me help you. No, I'll do it myself. Thank you very much. Even when you're a little kid, you know, your little children, you know, you say, here, would you like, would you like mommy or daddy to help you with that? No, do it myself. We raise them to do it. That's right. How do we raise them to do it? We, we, we praise them. Every time they do it. You drew that picture all by yourself. Nobody helped you. Wow. I am so impressed. You did that all by yourself. Look at Johnny tied his shoe all by himself. He zipped up his coat all by himself. He got these grades all by himself. He didn't cheat. He didn't borrow. He didn't collaborate with anybody else. He did it all by himself. And we give rewards. We praise. You want to you get presents at Christmas time? Be a good little boy, good little girl. You work hard at doing the right thing. We'll give you rewards. You get what you pay for. You pay for what you get. That's the way we think. That's the way we condition our children. We're all victims of it. 
in school, you want to maybe see if you can get a little higher grade than you're slated for. Teacher will say, well, I'll give you a project. You do this extra project, I'll give you extra credit. You know, you, you work. You're always trying to work to get what you deserve. And, and Paul Anka wrote the song that Elvis and um, Sinatra made famous and that America embraced. I did it my way. I did it my way. I believe this song could have been written by the devil himself. Now the end is near and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. But more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, I had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway. But more than this, more than this, I did it my way. Oh, yeah, there were times, I'm sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up. I spit it out. I faced it all. I stood tall. I did it my way. I've loved. I've laughed and cried. I've had my fill of my share of losing. Now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that. And may I say, not in a shy way. No, no. Oh, no, not me. I did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. No, the record shows I took the blows. I did it my way. That was written in hell and handed to Paul. And he handed it to Elvis and Frank. And they sang it and America said, Yes, that's our song! That's the American way. Is not this great Babylon that I have built. Zonk. You know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember? Daniel 4. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom has departed from you and they shall drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he chooses. God wished for Nebuchadnezzar to know who was keeping his heart beating. Isaiah 42.8 This is God speaking. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give. To another. It's not about what I do. It's about what he does. And what he does. This is so cool. What he does is he promises to work in us. Both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Both of them are his work in us. You've seen the scripture. Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. See, for a long time, people have taught, mistakenly, that you've got to choose the right thing. And if you will to do it, God will kick in and give you the rest of the power you need to make it get it done. And so we focus on trying to overcome our besetting habits, our problems. We try to become victorious by our effort figuring if we do our part, God does his. By the way, you've already, you, you know this. You've heard this long ago and far away. The idea that God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. It was Benjamin Franklin wrote that in Poor Richard's Almanac. So, you know, but we've somehow thought it was in the Bible and we've lived like it was in the Bible. But did you notice Philippians just told us that God works in us both to will and to do. In other words, it's his work in us that enables us to make the right choice and do the right thing. He not only gives us the right actions, he gives us the right desires. And if you have the right desire, the right action is a piece of cake. But if you don't have the right desire, then the right action is white knuckle it. Try harder. Make that choice more diligently. Straighten your backbone, stiffen, take that cold shower, 
That's what you have to do when you're doing it your way. When you do it his way, you want to do the right thing. And if you want to do the right thing, you don't struggle to do it. In fact, you'd have to struggle to do the wrong thing. You know, Desire of Ages says it was hard work with Christ. It starts out by saying all true obedience comes from the heart. That implies there's a false obedience too. You know where false obedience comes from? It's just backbone, toughing it out. That's false obedience. I had a guy say to me one time, I haven't smoked for 20 years. I haven't wanted to smoke for 20 minutes. Well, he, you know, what he did, staying away from those cigarettes for 20 years, was helping him probably not get lung cancer. And it had some other advantages probably, too. He probably could run farther and not, not get tired as quickly. But that's not the kind of victory that God intends for his people. He wants us to not only not have that problem, but he wants us to not even want it. And he promises to work in us both to will and to do. Isn't that exciting? That is the greatest news that we probably have never heard. And it's all contained in the three angels' messages. Have you heard them that way? That's in their message. It's just running right through it. An invitation to a life of faith instead of works. Surrendering to Jesus. And living depending on His power and His strength. Remember I said it was hard work. I got distracted. It was hard work with Christ. And it says if we will consent, He will so identify Himself with our thoughts and feelings that when doing the right thing, we will simply be carrying out our own desire. That's real obedience. And it's a promise that He's made to do that for those who surrender. God wants to do that. If that's what he wants to do, then what's he waiting for? Surrender. Surrender. But we don't seem to realize that with, that, that with God, so when, you, when, when you surrender, you win. See, we're conditioned once again. We're conditioned to think that surrender is what losers do. Surrender is what weak people do. Surrender is what people do who can't do it themselves, who can't fix it, who can't get out of that jam, who can't find the solution. So they surrender. But everything in us, including the devil whispering in our ear, says, I'm not going to surrender. I'll fix this computer. Give me another two and a half hours. I can do it myself. And how often do you hear people say, we tried this, we tried that, we tried everything. Finally, there was nothing left to do but pray. What does that tell you? Fornication. That's what it tells you. I tried to do it myself, couldn't do it. Finally, I decided I'd pray. What would happen if we prayed first? That's what I was praying that God would enable me to have a taste of, but he had hard work with my stubborn, independent heart. Because somehow in our minds, we think surrender is losing. We don't understand that surrender is winning. Many years ago when I was in high school, some friends of mine got certified to scuba dive. And um, they said to me, we have all this gear we've rented for the weekend. And, you know, you've never done this before, but it's so much fun. Come out with us and we'll, we'll, we'll do it with you. We'll, like buddy, we'll buddy dive with you and we'll get you all geared up and you can do this. And so I went with them and it was so exciting. I just couldn't believe it. It's like a whole other world to be floating there, you know, weightless and to see the fish and everything. It was just really cool. I came back and I was so jazzed about it. I was telling my parents about it. Just, oh, this is awesome. And then my friend said, well, we have enough gear. If your dad wants to come with us, we'll take him on Sunday. We'll all go. So I said, Dad, you want to go? And he said, well, you know, do you think I could? He said, well, sure you could. I just did it. I've never done it before. You can do it. They've got all the stuff. They can talk us through it. He says, well, could I try it out in the swimming pool? So they said, yeah, we can do that. So they arranged for him to put the gear on and go into the pool and go underwater and sit there and breathe. And He said, well, that's pretty cool. I mean, if I can do it, okay, I'll go. So he came on Sunday, so we all go to the ocean. It was a very turbulent day that day, and visibility was very low. You, know, you couldn't see very far underwater, and the waves were coming in pretty hard. We got all suited up and got our tanks on, got our regulators in our mouth. And of course, now you're breathing through a regulator, you're breathing air. 
So it doesn't matter if you go underwater, if the wave hits you in the face, because you can still breathe. So he said to my dad, all right, now here's what we do. We're going to all go out together, and the waves are going to be hitting us, but we don't need to worry, because we can breathe. And we're just going to keep swimming right into those waves, and then the waves are going to go over us, but we're going to be able to see, because we have our masks on, and we have our breath, because we have our regulators in our mouth, and... And then once we get past the turbulent water, we'll go down a little deeper, and then you'll start seeing this whole other world, and it'll be so great. So, you know, Dad's on. Okay, let's do it. And we start out. And then what happened is as the waves kept pounding and the visibility wasn't very good, my dad had a panic attack. He just got, like, panicked. And all the things we'd said about, it's no problem, you've got your air, nothing's going to happen... That just kind of went out the window. And so he's trying to stay with us, but he's getting more and more panicked, and he's starting to like hyperventilate. So now he's breathing really heavily through that you know, regular, you know. And I looked into his mask, and I could see his eyes, and they looked frightened. And so I'm telling him, you know, oh, it's okay. You know, you're making signs because you're not talking. It's okay, you know, just calm, be cool, it's okay. And I remember him looking back at me and shaking his head. (laughs) And he pointed towards the shore. You know, it's like, I'm out of here. Forget this. So I said, I I knew we were not very far from shore. So I made motions to him like, okay, it's cool, but we're going to keep going. So, you know, you go to shore and that's fine. We'll see you when we're done. So we went on out and dad turned around to swim back to shore. He's still breathing, you know, got the air and all that. He told us this story when we got to shore. He was on shore. But he told us this story. He said, as he started trying to swim back, there was a strong current coming against him. And he couldn't make progress. He was just making incremental progress. And of course, he's already panicked. So he's thrashing harder and harder trying to get back to shore and the harder he swims, the more tired he gets, and the more tired he gets, the less progress he makes, and the shore seems to be standing out there taunting him, and he can't reach it, and he's getting, you know, just really, really exhausted. And he said, this is, I couldn't believe this, he said he got so panicked and so tired at the same time that he finally concluded he was going to drown He wouldn't make it to shore and he didn't have the strength to fight any longer. And so he figured he would just sink. He quit trying because he couldn't do it anymore and he would just sink. And when he ran out of air, he would die. So that's what he did. He quit trying and he sank. And as he sank, his knees hit the bottom and he was waist deep in water. And he crawled out of the water and lay there like a dying whale with his black suit on. But he told us, honest truth, that's what he experienced. But you see the beauty of the illustration. When he finally gave up his own effort, surrendered and gave up all of his own effort, he discovered he was safe. He found out that when you surrender, you don't lose, you win. It's a great illustration. A great illustration. And it's what God wants to bring us to. Nebuchadnezzar had to lose everything before he surrendered and acknowledged his need. But he didn't understand, just like Dad hadn't, that surrender is the way you win. However, aren't you glad God was patient with Nebuchadnezzar? I'm so glad he was because that means he's patient with me. And I'm still striving to know Jesus better daily in spite of my stubborn independence because I believe that He's going to complete the work He began. Remember, that's a promise. He who started the good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. And so He brings a work to completion in this King, Nebuchadnezzar. And in the end, Nebuchadnezzar prays one of the most tremendous prayers in all the Bible, Daniel 4, verses 34 to 37. Notice this King's prayer. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. 
and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom is from generation to generation. It continues. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to Him. He has the power to do as He pleases among the angels of heaven and with those who live on earth. No one can stop Him or challenge Him saying, what do you mean by doing these things? It continues. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything He does is right and all of His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. If God could bring that heathen king to His senses, He can do it for you and for me. And one day we're going to join the people on the shore of the lake that looks like fire. And we're going to sing Revelation 15.3 together. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of Saints. So I thought it would be kind of fun for us to sing a song right now with Evie. And so it's a song you know. It's a medley, actually. I surrender all and I need thee every hour. Doesn't that seem like a good way to conclude a message like this one? So here we go. We're going to try and do it. Music should come through.
Father, but good news, you got Nebuchadnezzar. If you can get Nebuchadnezzar, I think there's hope for us here too. And so we want to ask for forgiveness for our stubborn independence. For just hanging on to the notion that somehow we're going to help you do the work that you've promised to do in our lives. What, what, a, what a blessing, what a joy, what a gift it is for us to discover in your word all the promises you've made to, to make us new creations, to give us hearts of flesh, to remove our hearts of stone, to create us anew in your likeness. Uh, we want to be surrendered. And so we just pray that you continue to lead us to that posture. Save us from the wine of Babylon. And make us more like Jesus for his sake, I pray. Amen.